The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Sharp Lessons presented by Stadium. We got Ben Wittenstein with you. We got the professor, Nate Jacobson. Got a fun episode. Lots to talk about. I know we don't have any NBA or NHL playoffs to talk about, no NFL, but we still have NBA odds. We've got our Big 12 preview for the season totals. And, Nate, we are joined today by Dave Ross as well, talking everything from the NFC East preview, uh, UFC, golf. He gets into everything. Yeah, we're starting to uh, mow through these NFL previews, and today was NFC East Day, and we knew there's no one better to talk about it than Stadium's own Dave Ross, who's a Cowboys fan. He wrote a book about the Cowboys once, worked in the D.C. area, so he's just very familiar with all the teams in that division, and he's a UFC guy, and we have a pay-per-view fight this Saturday night in Houston, Texas. So he broke down all the odds and and the main event and the main card, along with some golf at the end as we kind of get into the end of the golf season with some bigger events, some big prize pools. So we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, we got that. Um, And like you said, he talks a lot about UFC. Um, He has some good stories about Sergio Garcia as well, which was uh, fun to listen to. So that interview will be coming up. But right now, Nate, let's start with NBA because we had NBA free agency the past couple of days. It's been exciting. It's been fun. Lots of players have been moving teams, some big names. Uh, Russell Westbrook moving from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Lakers. You get the Bulls getting Lonzo Ball, DeMar DeRozan. Very excited about that personally. But because of all this, you have now teams moving up and down in the odds list about who's going to win the title. Um, And as pretty much everyone would expect, the Nets still remain the favorite at plus 220. The Lakers, though, now moving up, but they're still number two, as expected, plus 380. Um, And as you look at this list, is there any teams now that stand out because of the moves that they made? And maybe the number is still pretty solid and it hasn't moved too much or anything like that. You have the Warriors now at 10 to 1, the Bucks at plus 950 to repeat. Well, Well, what are you looking at when you look at a list like this now that we have seen where the free agents have gone? Yeah, not not looking to make a bet right now. Um, just the NBA Finals aren't going to be decided until mid to late June, and it's it's only August, so not going to tie up my money for ten months. I, I know we talked about the NBA Finals odds uh, right after the Bucks won, and mm-hmm. I said like, don't don't waste your money and tie up your money when we have a full football season ahead, and you're going to want that money at your disposal. But it is look worth looking and see kind of how the odds changed for certain teams as you mentioned the lakers have moved up they even moved up a little bit from four to one to plus 380 this morning and the the nets who we said wait on the nets don't bet on the nets be dumb to bound the nets when they were like plus 150 now they're plus 220 as they've lost a few depth pieces so uh, not much to say at the top others and i'm not really sure and i want to get your thoughts ben because you're more an nba guy but the russell westbrook for you uh, the trade to the Lakers, is that a huge positive for the Lakers where they should have moved up 
in the odds? I know Westbrook's a big name and gets all the triple doubles, but do you think as a whole the team is going to be better off um, when we get into the playoffs with him? They should be a little bit better, and I think with a move like this, when you have someone with a big name moving to a big team like the Lakers, which a lot of people love to bet on because of LeBron, you might get a little bit of an overreaction from the markets just a bit. I don't. He's obviously going to help that team, especially in the regular season uh, when people, yeah. you know, like LeBron or even Anthony Davis may need a couple nights off or here and there take some rest because um, he's just always going to be going. But once the playoffs start. You know, he he didn't play super great last year in the playoffs, and he hasn't really shown in his history to be a super uh, good playoff player who really makes a big difference in series. So I, I'm not super convinced that it really helps him a ton um, come playoff time, and I don't really know exactly what the team is going to look like, especially with all these moves now to get veteran players and to get these guys like Carmelo Anthony and bring back Dwight Howard, and now their average age I think is like 33, 34, so – that certainly has to be brought in to the equation, how old the team is going to be, especially now where people are talking about resting players and load management in the long 82-game season. I know how healthy is this team going to be able to stay throughout the season and then obviously into the playoffs where the most important parts happen. So, you know, if they're going into the playoffs with three or four guys injured, those odds at plus 380 are going to look really bad. So I, I don't. I don't know if the market really adjusted fairly for that. Um, and I know they moved up and, and which made the Nets, obviously their number moved down too. So I probably like you, I mean, I'm not going to bet anything right now. Like you said, you don't want that money to be tied up for 10 months, but I definitely don't think I would hit the Lakers preseason. I just, there's so many question marks with them and it, it seems crazy to say I'm betting, you know, against a team with LeBron and Anthony Davis on it, but it's just, there's so many there's so many question marks. I don't really know what the team is trying to be with all the veterans. And there's just, uh, there's just so much you don't know that I would just wait and see. And maybe, you know, if they, unfortunately, if they have to deal with injuries or if they have to deal with load management and they lose a couple games in the middle of the season, you might get a better number from them because they might be, you know, fifth or sixth seed in the West. Oh, absolutely. And we saw them as a seven seed last year in a 72 game season. A lot of that because Davis and LeBron were hurt. I do agree, though, maybe you raise the stock of the West of Westbrook in terms of the Lakers in the regular season, but in the playoffs, they're still going to probably have those same issues when it comes to uh, outside shooting. And we saw them not being a great outside shooting team, uh, no. especially towards the end of that series against the Suns. So I think there may be a little bit of an overreaction to the Westbrook trade for the Lakers, but also not surprising just because he is a big name. Uh, the Lakers kind of making one, maybe one more aggressive push to the finals. Like if they stood pat, I could see that number drifting. But you get in a guy like Westbrook, who's a big name, puts up big stats in the regular season. I understand it. A team that moved up since the end of this NBA finals. So before the draft, before free agency, the Miami Heat, who were at 35 to one, uh, they we're at the same level as the Atlanta Hawks, which kind of makes a lot of sense, especially after the Hawks run to the Eastern Conference Finals. But now they're at 28 to 1, which is the same odds as the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, they retain Jimmy Butler on a max deal, retain Duncan Robinson, bring in Kyle Lowry in a sign and trade, which I think is the maybe the bigger driver, biggest driver of the odds moving up, just kind of getting in a, a guy who's won an NBA championship with the Raptors and a player that's well-respected, a big name. 
Uh, they also brought in P.J. Tucker, and it just seems like Miami is also making an aggressive push in the Eastern Conference. So understand why that line or odds has moved up. Do you like the moves, Ben? Um, maybe not from a betting standpoint, but just like a basketball standpoint as a whole for the Heat. Yeah, they've made some really good moves and surprisingly were able to get P.J. Tucker away from the Bucks, which was kind of incredible. I think even P.J. Tucker was surprised by that in his Instagram post. So they're clearly making a move to win now. And I have the same problem I do with the Lakers, and that's just age. And Jimmy Butler, we saw have injury history last year. And a guy who looked like he was invincible finally kind of seemed like he needed some rest here and there throughout the regular season. Bam Adebayo has had a history of injuries. P.J. Tucker is not getting any younger. And now you bring in a 35-year-old Kyle Lowry, who's going to be 36 by playoff time. So this is another one of those teams where you look at the starting lineup and you say, this is a really good starting lineup. They have all the pieces that they need, um, which it could be true. And they could have a really good regular season. But again, come playoff time, are they all going to be healthy? Are they all going to be available? Or is the 82-game season going to wear them down? And a team with all these old guys on it, it's one of those where I'd be weary of it. But I understand them moving up with the odds. Um, and maybe maybe one of the teams that you hit you know, mid-season through. Um, but especially preseason, I, I just don't know. That's another one of those teams where you look at it and you say, well, are they going to be healthy? Because the age is certainly a factor with that team. Yeah, definitely. And the, the Heat were a team I bet under regular season win total last year. One of the few bets I won in terms of regular season win total was kind of a rough year for me in that category. <laughs> but the part, part of the reason is I thought the Heat would just kind of have that NBA finals hangover with the, sh- the shortened season because they did make the finals in the bubble. Yeah. Now with them kind of reloading, I can see them being a good regular season team, kind of trying very hard night in and night out and uh, get, expect get the most out of an Eric Spolsha team knowing that maybe when it comes to the playoffs, getting seeded higher is going to help because they ended up at the 60 this year, which means they got, had to play the Bucks and they got swept in that series. Uh, this morning, we got a report from Shams Trania saying that Kemba Walker is going to sign for with the Knicks after getting bought out by the Thunder. Uh, the Celtics uh, traded him this offseason, or it was probably during the playoffs, uh, but he was never going to stay in Oklahoma City. And I noticed this morning when I was just kind of looking up the odds at one place, the Knicks moved from 100 to 1 to 80 to 1. So that may have been directly correlated to the Walker signing. But the real mover in the Eastern Conference is the Chicago Bulls. And we're not just talking about this because we're from Chicago and grew up Bulls fans. But the Bulls really have moved up in the odds. I think at some places they were 150 to 1 going into this offseason before the draft. And they didn't have a first round pick. And now at some places they're as high as 60 to 1 to win the NBA Finals after uh, the sign and trade on Tuesday, getting DeMar DeRozan. They get Lonzo Ball like a minute into the free agency window. Yeah. Uh, they have Zach Levine, Nikola Vujicic, who they traded for uh, at the trade deadline last year. So it's kind of rounding into a, a pretty respectable starting five. And they add Alex Caruso as a defensive specialist. Um, so you had a, a kind of a player who's was a need for the team in terms of defense up to 60 to one. I could see the Bulls as the team that a lot of smart people, a lot of sharp people go under their win total thinking, oh, they won the offseason. Now they're getting too overvalued. What do you think about the Bulls? Or do you think that this team is kind of built now for the regular season uh, with the depth they have and also 
the fact that it's that haven't made the playoffs in such a long time that they're going to probably give a strong effort night in night out with Billy Donovan as head coach. Definitely a regular season team right now, for sure. And playoff wise, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I can't really say speak on that right now. My hope is to make it first. They got to make it first. I know my, my heart says they're going to be a good playoff team, but my head says pump the brakes on that just, just a little bit. And my suggestion, if you really want to bet the bulls at 60 to one, is wait until the schedule comes out. And if they have a, a semi-difficult schedule in the first week, first two or three weeks, wait a bit. Wait until they get through that tough schedule because, A, they either win a lot and you can tell that they're going to be a very good team and their championship odds might go up just a little bit and you probably won't lose a ton of value. And so you can bet them then and you'll have a better idea of what type of team they are. Or... They lose in the first couple weeks more than they win. And that's going to be a, because it's a new team. They're building chemistry together. Zach Levine is still in Tokyo. So he's going to probably take a little bit of time to get reantiquated with the team to build that chemistry and, and to get back his footing for some NBA games after getting some rest. Um, and I, I don't think this is a team that would panic if they start losing in the first two or three weeks, because it's a new team fold fully together for the first time. That might be a good time to hit the bulls because then you might get a better number in the championship odds. So either way, I would wait till the schedule comes out, see what type of games they have, see what you think they can do in the first two or three weeks, and then probably make the move once you get into late November, early December, because I still think you can get probably a good number um, because you'll either know that they can win against good teams or you you know that they're probably going to make a pretty good comeback midway through the season. So that would be my advice regarding the Bulls. I would not hit them preseason. No, especially because if you kind of followed the news, you would have expected the Bulls to be aggressive in free agency. And if you yeah. could have got them at a 100 to 1 or better just uh, 48 hours ago. So uh, I'm interested to see where that regular season win total opens. I can imagine it being somewhere in the low 40s and maybe getting bet up a little, like 43 and a half or something, as as long as we still have that 82 game season, which is which is what the schedule or what the plan is. So uh, I think they're going to be a team that in a few months or maybe just a month or a month and a half, when people are putting out their regular season win total predictions that the bulls are going to be a, a fascinating team where a lot of people will be making cases for the over, but a lot of people will be kind of selling high based on the moves they made. Oh, yeah. Just the uncertainty if they made the right moves and brought in the right players uh, at this time. So I think that's a good, a uh, good way to wrap up the NBA talk is uh, it's a league. That's a tr- like kind of like the NFL 12 months of the year. You can always, Oh yeah. The NBA. And we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of adjustments made after this free agency, which was a pretty wild uh, 48 hours. All right, so let's, so t- let's talk some college football. Talk the conference that might not be a conference in the next decade is the <laughs> Big 12. Uh, so might as yeah. well might as well enjoy them while we can at this point with Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. But let, let's preview some of these teams and, and see what some of these uh, win totals that we like because for all the talk. The people are saying about the Big 12 going away and you're, you're now hearing like Kansas might go to the Big 10 and Oklahoma and Texas are going to the SEC. Right. They're going to have some pretty good teams this season. You're going to have Oklahoma and te- your Iowa State, Texas, and, and there's some interesting teams sprinkled in there. It definitely is. And when we were trying to kind of pick what teams we wanted, we definitely had a clear three with Oklahoma and Texas being the top two. But then Iowa State has kind of stood out is that uh, – other contender who, who based on the odds have the second best chance of 
winning the Big 12 and our slight favorite to make the Big 12 title game. But then you have like TCU, Baylor, even Texas Tech this year with a with a solid quarterback transfer. Oklahoma State is always there, even though they lost a little bit. There's just a lot of teams where it's it's going to be competitive games throughout the league season, unless you're uh, unless you're Kansas and it, it could, yeah. it's a total rebuild in Lawrence and maybe uh, why the Big Ten is a little hesitant about uh, totally inviting them into their <laughs> in their conference and. We, we've kind of talked a little bit about like schedule analysis in these previews. And, and I said how Clemson and Ohio State have easy schedules because they don't have to play themselves. Well, I'd yeah. say Kansas has one of the tougher schedules in the conference because they don't get to play themselves. And every other <laughs> team in the Big 12 is lined at the yeah. lowest, like five and a half season wins. So there's a situation where like all nine Big 12 teams, others in Kansas can get bowl eligibility this year if they all kind of beat up on each other and and split out the uh, wins at, at the middle class of the conference. But we got to start about Oklahoma, one of the Big 12 defects who mm-hmm. kind of we knew Texas was like always kind of proactively trying to find greener pastures. But Oklahoma kind of uh, sounded like they kind of backstabbed a few athletic directors in the, the Big 12, if you read the quote. Yeah, Oklahoma, who's a you know, founding member of the conference and was always kind of loyal, uh, even in the toughest times. Uh, but they have been the class of the conference, um, especially ever since Lincoln Riley took over for Bob Stoops. This year, we're seeing a win total of 11, going minus 120 to the over at the uh, specific book I looked at to make the Big 12 title game. So just to finish top two in the conference, it's minus 450. They are minus 180 to win the Big 12. And I was looking at the Big 12 odds and then at the sports book that I was looking at to make the playoff. They're minus 210. And I thought that was interesting because if Oklahoma doesn't win the Big 12, they're not going to make the college football playoff. So I think there's a kind of a big discrepancy there if you if you like Oklahoma and I I do. Uh, especially they don't even have to, they can lose a game or two and still win, make the big 12 title game and, and then be a, at least a field goal favorite in the big 12 title, probably maybe yeah. even more as, as, long, as long as they stay healthy. But minus 180, when you look at them uh, to win the conference, looks a lot way more appealing than to make the playoff at minus 210. So that's kind of a discrepancy that you can take advantage of. And they are one of the five, title contenders uh, with Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, um, and the other team, Ohio State. Can't forget about them. Oklahoma, plus 750 to win the title. Spencer Rattler, their quarterback, plus 600. He's the Heisman favorite at that odds. And we kind of see, like, I think they're justified because of the offensive setting he'll be in. Big 12 defenses are a joke, so he'll put up big stats. But also Lincoln Riley has a great history of taking in a transfer in Baker Mayfield, turning him into a Heisman, taking in Kyler Murray, a transfer from Texas A&M, making him into a Heisman. And both players the next year ended up being the first overall picks in the NFL draft. So you're never going to get a discount on an Oklahoma quarterback in the Heisman trophy market because of what Lincoln Riley did with Baker and Kyler. I know Kyler, when he won, he was like 20 to one preseason and that's something I didn't bet, but going into the year, I was like, oh, that could be interesting just because he has a high ceiling. He was a five-star recruit, and Lincoln yeah. Riley is an offensive mastermind. Yeah. They also have a good defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, uh, one of the better in the country. And he's 
Uh, he's really kind of improved that defense that was very bad for a, a while. They have good talent. They just didn't have good schemes. And Grinch is at least making some improvements. And I think if they could take kind of a next step, that they're going to be a legitimate title contender. Uh, when it comes to schedule, they host Nebraska non-conference. Uh, we mentioned on the last confer- uh, podcast, the Big Ten, how Nebraska really kind of had a, a raw deal having to play at Oklahoma as one of their non-conference games, along with having to play Ohio State as a crossover. And then with Oklahoma, I thought the scheduling dynamic that was the most interesting is their last two games of the year are against Iowa State and at Oklahoma State. So there's a real good chance they start off 10-0, and uh, and then there's going to be a lot of pressure in those games to kind of continue to uh, keep their profile up when it comes to the college football playoff rankings and and winning out and then winning the Big 12 title and at 13-0 and getting into the playoff. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a easy over for Oklahoma. Uh, I, I mean, is, who do they lose but, to? But, I mean, they could lose to Iowa State or Oklahoma State at the end, which is, I think, what's going to come down to the win total at 11. Yeah. It just, it just they have Iowa State things. at home, though. Yeah, I, I, no, think, I like the Iowa State at home. Oklahoma they State, do. yeah, I, I just, I think this is almost an easy over. I don't. I would. I would rather I bet them to win the Big 12, knowing they just finished top two. They'll be, yeah. they'll be a favorite in the Big 12 title game. Um, that's probably a bet that probably has moved a little too much. I think uh, there were better numbers available earlier in the summer, so might sit out on that. But if you wanted some action on the Big 12, Oklahoma to win the conference at minus 180, uh, I think that's just a little bit better than uh, the win total at over 11 because if they do lose a game, the best you can do is push. But there's a scenario where they could be a 10-2 and team and still finish second in the Big 12. And because they're just a very talented team, be favorites in the Big 12 title game. So I think it's worth paying the extra, extra big for them to win the Big 12 as opposed to going over 11. Yeah, they're just going to be so good this year. They're going to be really fun to watch. Spencer Rattler is going to be the guy that people tune in prime time Oklahoma football for. So it's I mean, (laughs) they have a really easy start to the schedule. Three out of four games are at home and they're four really easy teams. Um, I, I just don't see a, a spot where they really get upset. Um, may, like that Texas game in Dallas maybe would be yeah. the only spot. I and mean, still, that's not really a high chance spot. They get upset there, that, but maybe that used to be always a, a scary game for them when, when Tom Herman was the coach, cause we got yeah. to throw out the old famous, uh, Tom Herman as an underdog, how good of a record he had against the spread, uh, yeah. just has, him as an Urban Meyer disciple, and Urban being the best uh, underdog coach, Tom Herman had an amazing track record. And I remember when I was writing articles for college football, watchstadium.com, how I was like, always look at Texas if they're an underdog. Because Tom Herman, when he was Great at Houston, underdog. was like 6-0 and straight up as an underdog. And he started <laughs> off doing well at Texas, at least against the spread. They weren't winning a lot of those games. But I do remember one year, they did upset Oklahoma as like a touchdown favorite. But now... We'll talk about Texas in a little bit, but Steve Sarkeesian is the coach. So yeah. can't use those old uh, uh, Tom Herman trends as a crutch when uh, giving a reason to back the Longhorns anymore. Hey, well, maybe Sarkeesian will take his spot as being an underdog coach. Maybe I mean, he'll maybe, be under undervalued going into the season, hit some underdogs. Well, if they go to the SEC and have to play teams in the SEC West, they're going to yeah. be an underdog probably quite a bit. <laughs> 
So Oklahoma, I, I would probably, yeah, I think play, saying they're going to win the, the conference, I think, is a better move. Um, yeah. I think you're right about that. But the other team that could give them issues, Iowa State, as you said, um, and that is another really interesting team because they're most likely, if Oklahoma is going to be number one in the Big 12, it's going to be Iowa State that's going to be the second best team in the conference, in my opinion, at least is what it's looking like. I mean, this is the team that is bringing back all but one offensive starter, I believe, and all but two defensive starters. So the production that they're bringing back is unbelievable. Brock Purdy, their quarterback, is coming back, and he's going to be one of the better quarterbacks in the nation. Um, and Iowa State's win total sits at about nine. I think you can get them at nine and a half. Um, if you get them at nine, the over is juiced just a little bit. I think it's like minus 130 or so with the over nine. And to be honest, I think they should be a 10-win team this season. And they're coming off the best season of all time for an Iowa State football team. I think they can continue that into this year. And looking at their schedule, they have a tough start against Iowa as their second game at home. But I do think that's a game they can win. And I know we talked about how high we were on Iowa uh, only, what was it, a week or two ago? Yeah, but the I, last week Rizzo did an Iowa breakdown and kind of talked yeah. about how Iowa State has really struggled in that series. So that's kind of a big game, not just for the regular season win total, but just I think mentally as a program to kind of get over that hurdle. Yeah, so they right, they can afford two losses, essentially. If you're if you're thinking they can be a ten win team, and I think Iowa State can be a ten win team. They can afford two losses, and I'll chalk off the Oklahoma game in the second to last week of the season as a loss. They're going to Oklahoma. They're probably going to lose that game. But then you look at the rest of their schedule, and Iowa is a game they could win, but again, that's going to be a rivalry game. Both teams are going to be pretty good this year. Um, luckily for Iowa State, they get Iowa at home, so that's a big bonus to them. They're going to be a favorite in that one. And then the only other game I could see them losing would probably be against Texas, and they get Texas at home. So they have a very uh, favorable schedule this season. They, uh, Northern Iowa should be a win. Then they have a really, really cushy middle of the schedule. UNLV, Baylor, Kansas, Kansas State, Oklahoma State. They have to go to West Virginia, which could be a trap game because that could be one of those look-ahead games to Texas where they're getting ready yeah. for them. They could lose at West Virginia. So that oh, would yeah. be the only concern would be they lose to Iowa. You can chalk that Oklahoma game as a loss. And then you can't afford any other losses if you're going to bet the over nine or over nine and a half. And that West Virginia would be the one on the schedule that I pinpoint and say that's one of those look ahead losses where they're looking at Texas. They're getting ready for Texas. They have to go on the road to West Virginia. Tough place to play. Um, that could be the loss. But I, I have confidence in them that I think they can beat Iowa. So if they do, they can afford to lose that West Virginia game and then lose against Oklahoma and still get the over 10. My worry about Iowa State is just they're Iowa State. They're just not a big program. They, they <laughs> wow, don't recruit no at the Matt highest Campbell level. Confidence. I mean, I like Matt Campbell. have a lot of respect for him. I know Brock Purdy was a highly touted recruit, and he he returned after, I know, probably going into last year, there was some NFL buzz because he would have been eligible. But it's just like Iowa State is just – they're not very – good of a program i know they've recruited better and, and a lot of things but now you have to ask them to win double digit games if you view the sports uh betting market like the stock market then this is like paying the highest on a like an average stock that you don't know how high the ceiling can, can go if there's going to be a ceiling so you're like basically paying the highest for them when you might want to be shorting them because you know you can do that in terms of betting their season win total over or in individual games and while I like that they you know, they have the returning production, Brees Hall is a great running back that is going to be back. 
Matt Campbell probably has turned down NFL offers knowing that this season could be special for Iowa State. I just have trouble going over such a high number with Iowa State when a few years ago they were at a more palpable seven and a half or something and, and were able to exceed their expectations. So I'm going to stay away from Iowa State. Very interested to see about what happens in that week two game against Iowa. It's always a, not always a close game, but this is, like I said, a big, be fun. big check for Iowa State to try yeah. to mentally kind of go over. Uh, so if, if you're worried about tying up your money for three months in terms of regular season win total on Iowa State, uh, depending on whether you like them or not, I think attacking that week two game against Iowa. And you did mention that scheduling spot at West Virginia. That's between home games against Oklahoma State and Texas. So yeah. when we t- we handicap college football, there's always a lot of uh, psychological handicapping and kind of trying to find flat spots in the schedule. The, d- the day before Halloween, too, in West Virginia, if that's a night game, that might be oh, a yeah. raucous crowd at Mountaineer Field in Morgantown. So when I look back at some scheduling stuff, I think I'm going to write in my notes just like, Look to fade Iowa State October 30th at West Virginia because that looks like uh, uh, the sandwich game of all sandwich games that I've seen, at least on on the Iowa State schedule. Fade fade the road teams on Halloween Eve is, is <laughs> the think, real go-to there. I think last year Halloween was on a Saturday, and I was like uh, worried, but there wasn't that many oh, fans yeah. in the crowd. So, That's uh, true. But it's West Virginia, though, like Halloween weekend. That could oh, be yeah. a scary spot, no, no pun intended, for uh, – for Purdy and, and Campbell and uh, and the rest of Iowa State, especially because West Virginia geographically isn't very close to any of those Big 12 schools. So that's a far trip for whoever has to go out there. All right, Texas. What, what yeah. should we know about Texas? Comeback season, new coach this this Texas is here. They do have talent. They have talent. Herman, Tom Herman, who they fired uh, in January, he recruited pretty well. He just... I don't know. The the recruits he brought in just weren't developed correctly or just maybe they had a little bit too much confidence that they're like, oh, we're at Texas. We don't have to, you know, work as hard to kind of get the wins that are required in college football. I'm not really sure exactly what happened because it, it really should have been it was the right hire. It was a, a guy who, you know, it was a very good recruiter, good offensive mind. He did great things at Ohio State under Urban Meyer. So pretty shocking that it, it didn't work out honestly and I don't think it was a bad hire just sometimes they don't work out bring in new coach Steve Sarkeesian who went to the Nick Saban uh, rehab program of coaches who uh, struggle and and then he brings yeah. them under their wing and he takes them in and and he gets some new life whether it was Lane Kiffin or or Mike Loxley or even another example Butch Jones the former Tennessee coach who was on Nick Saban's staff I think he started like an intern, and now he's at Arkansas State. But Steve Sarkeesian, big job for him. Texas, he was the coach at USC at one point, was the coach at Washington, offensive coordinator for the Falcons. So he's been to a lot of stops before going to Alabama and serving as their offensive coordinator, where the offense had a lot of success. So um, I'm sure the Texas boosters love to see that. I'm sure some of them even knew that there was a chance they would be in the SEC and they needed a, a coach like Sarkeesian who – had familiarity with Alabama and Saban if they wanted to to beat him. So Texas this year, win total of eight, a little bit of juice on the under, 
plus 290 to make the Big 12 title game. So that's third behind Oklahoma and then Iowa State, who's minus 130 to make that game, plus 750 to win the Big 12. As I mentioned, new coach Sarkeesian. And they're going to be tested right off the bat. Week one, Texas hosts Louisiana, uh, formerly known as Louisiana Lafayette. And you might be like, oh, Louisiana, that's kind of an easy game. Texas is only fair by 10 in that game. Louisiana is a very solid group of five team led by head coach Bill Napier, who turned down the Auburn job. And um, I know there's a lot of talk. I think Alex, when he came on the podcast a few weeks ago, said Bill Napier to LSU is something that he could see happen very soon. (laughs) Uh, But that's the week one game. And Louisiana returns a lot of returning production uh, coming back. So that could be a tough game, especially Sark's first game. Week two, then, they have to go on the road at Arkansas. And the look-ahead line for that is Texas minus three and a half. So there's a real good chance they start off the season one and one. And if they start off the season one and one, getting to nine wins, going over the win total, is something I have a hard time to see happening. Their road games are at TCU. They have Baylor and Iowa State in back-to-back weeks. Uh, they have November road games at Iowa State and West Virginia, which are probably the two colder climate uh, schools in the Big 12. So you can get cold games in November, and the kids from Texas not used to that cold. So I think there's a lot of trickiness in the schedule, even though there is talent. Um, Sarkeesian, I mean, he's done it well as an assistant coach, but at when you think about him, just his last head coaching stops haven't gone great. So I, I wouldn't go over eight wins for Texas. I think eight seems like it's pretty, pretty good number. Um, yeah. If I had to bet it, I'd bet under just because of some of those tricky spots. I actually probably, uh, instead of betting under their win total, take Louisiana plus 10 and hope that the kind of Texas has some early on struggles. Um and then maybe if they do lose straight up or something, bet on them against Arkansas in a, in a buy low spot in week two. So I'm more interested in Texas early in the season, how they do in those first few games and, and trying to bet into that as opposed to their full season outlook. Even though, as I mentioned, some of those road games could be tricky in the Big 12 against Iowa State, who's a very good Big 12 team, and then West Virginia, who is who's getting better and proving. They're definitely one of those teams where you're, just have no idea what type of team they're going to be with that new head coach. So I would definitely stay away. I, I would agree with you. I would stay away from betting in preseason. See how they do in the first couple of games. Maybe bet them on a single game basis. But I just, you just don't know what type of Texas you're going to get. And I guess like I made that argument why like I wouldn't bet the Iowa State over because it's taking a stock at its highest point. Now you're taking like Google at its dip with Texas. <laughs> just having to win eight games to push like seven and five is for Texas talent shouldn't happen. So maybe this is a buy low spot on Texas. I just, with the way this early season schedule works out and how the non-conference isn't pushovers, I would be looking to kind of see how it goes. So I'm not going to bet anything Texas preseason, but I'm definitely looking, we'll look to bet them. Like probably most, honestly, most of my college football bets will be in season. I used to bet a lot of season win totals, conference stuff, but with the chance that games could be postponed for many different factors, if the game's postponed, that win total ticket is voided. So I kind of want to wait and see how uh, 
like just the week to week goes, especially because last season was such a, a weird year and an outlier. And a lot of teams probably can throw their statistics out the out the window. Uh, I rather just kind of look into a week to week with college football, which frankly, I like a lot better and why college football is one of my favorite regular season sports because of the amount of games on a Saturday. But also just there's a lot of more betting opportunities, in my opinion, and, and lines are are more often it is in like in the NFL where all the lines are super tight. So let's go to Dave. We talked to Dave Ross. He had a lot to say. A lot of fun stuff. A lot of fun stuff about the NFC East too. Uh, big Cowboys guy. So he, he had a lot of fun uh, talking about the Cowboys and their uh, chances at winning the NFC East. So let's go over to Stadium Zone, Dave Ross. All right. We want to welcome on Stadium Zone, Dave Ross, to the podcast. Dave, appreciate you joining us. How you doing? I, I, I feel honored to be on with you guys. I haven't seen Nate in forever uh, since back in our studio days. Hopefully I get to see yeah. you, Ben, as well, as we hopefully get back to some normalcy. But until then, you know, we got to take what we can get. Yes, I was just back in the office, too, for the uh, NBA oh. shows, and it was good to see people in there and walking right. around, hanging out. It was fun. <laughs> um, so, Dave, big Cowboys fan, as yep. we know. So let's talk some NFC East odds. And your Cowboys right now, the favorite at plus 135 uh, at most places around. Those are pretty much the average odds. So they are the favorite to win the mm-hmm. NFC East at plus 135. And we can go through all these teams. Washington, I think, is at plus 200. The Giants are plus 450. Eagles plus 550. How are you feeling about the Cowboys this season? Is this uh, is this the year they win the division? Well, here's the thing, Ben. And I look at it historically, okay, because I'm old. And I see that nobody in the NFC East has repeated since 2004. Now, that's an anomaly. I understand that. You can go, well, that can't repeat. Well, it's repeated for about 17 seasons, right? So that's why I don't like Washington to necessarily repeat because the history of the division just shows that's not the case. I do not like the Eagles' chances at all this year. I just think with a rookie head coach, uh, Jalen Hurts, we'll find out if he's going to be the guy going forward. The defense to me still isn't even good enough. And the offense is average at best. And I'm hearing whispers as much as I like Jalen Hurts coming out of Oklahoma. And I thought he did a pretty good job in his rookie year there. I just don't know that he's the long-term guy. So to me, it comes down by process of elimination to a two-horse race between the Cowboys and the Giants. I look at New York and I watch closely what Joe Judge is doing. And to me, that's a team ready to take the next step. And I don't know if we buy into the big fight they had at training camp and all the guys <laughs> were punching out Daniel Jones today and all that, but they, they are building something in New York. And as a Cowboy fan, but somebody objectively looking at, at this division, yeah, I get it. Washington's defensive front is the best, not maybe all in the East, but could be in the entire NFL. I still think they have a lot of questions at quarterback if Ryan Fitzpatrick is supposed to be the guy. I actually be more scared of Taylor Heineke. He's not going to get the job there. So to me, I look at the Giants and Daniel Jones, and you, you're getting back a stud in Saquon Barkley if he's ready to go, okay? You're, you're improving that, that offensive line. Surely, surely but surely, they're getting better. We know Joe Judge is a special teams guy, and people always overlook special teams. That can win you three ball games if you really have an elite unit there, and I think they're getting a lot better there. The Giants and the Cowboys, to me, are the two teams to beat in the NFCs. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Cowboys, who are the division favorite right now. Win total, there's some nine juiced over, but a lot of nine and a half out there, which is more minus 110 each way. 
What are some of the things that you like about the team? But so also some things that concern you. I would assume it's it's the star-studded offense, but then the the leaky defense that we saw for much of last season. Absolutely, Nate. I, I look at that number and I go, well, if you get it at nine, I like it because obviously 17 games this year, right? And then if you get nine, at least it's a push. Can they be a 10 10 win football team? I think they can. But at nine and a half, it gets a little bit trickier, right? Because then you don't get the bailout of the push at nine. So. I'd be very cautious about that for a couple of reasons. One, I do trust Dan Quinn to come in and really uh, sufficiently shore up this defense from a schematic point of view. Last year, they had a lot of guys like Tank Lawrence on the D-line, a lot of guys like Jalen Smith. They were playing out of position, to be quite honest with you. I think they're going to get back to playing in position and those key players being hopefully uh, familiar back with their old roles that they were a couple of years ago when they were very disruptive. Demarcus Lawrence has to play like a top 10 edge rusher in the league if he does that pass rush which was abominable last year gets a whole lot better and I think being slighted as uh, slated rather into the proper spot on that front four I think he'll be able to do that if the linebackers can run and when you get a stud in the first round of Micah Parsons out of Penn State and you hope he can fill some of those holes defense defense uh, that they had deficiently uh, on the defensive side of the football that linebacking core all of a sudden oh my goodness I know they didn't pick up the option for Leighton Van Der Esch But if he's healthy and Jalen Smith is back to his old Jalen Smith and you add Micah Parsons, all of a sudden you have guys at the linebacker position that can fill, that can run. They can go sideline to sideline. That's going to make everybody in that front four that much better. Yes, I'm still concerned about the back four, but that front seven this year has a chance to be elite. Dan Quinn's going to put them in the right spots. That defense is going to be a lot better. And I have zero questions about the offense zero they're getting back gentlemen their entire starting five on the offensive line we can talk about the the triplets all we want they're going to be great Zeke being back to hopefully being the old Zeke we'll find out about that Dak Prescott of course it's really all up front and if that starting five is back and intact which we believe them to be right now remember they were on third string offensive linemen a year ago so To me, getting back that starting five, every single one of them, under contract, back in and healthy, with basically a year off, look out. This offense, if they stay healthy, there is no way they can't be productive. So you mentioned the Giants and the fighting and and Joe Judge and doing all that. And we see fights every single preseason with teams. And this one did sound like one of the uh, bigger fights that teams have had in preseason. Seeing something like that. Does that make you more inclined to maybe look at them as uh, someone to bet on either for division odds or preseason? Or do you look at that and say, I'm definitely staying away from them now? Oh, no, Ben. I like it. I, like, look, I've yeah. covered training camp for, for decades in D.C., right? And when you saw the feistier teams, like when Greg Williams was the defensive coordinator in D.C. under Joe Gibbs, well, they went to the, the playoffs two of those four years in Joe Gibbs 2.0. They didn't have a whole lot of success before or after, right? And sometimes you get those mundane camps, nothing's really happening. You show me fire early on in a training camp, these guys are there fighting for something. So I actually just externally, when I look at that and I view it, I do put a little bit of stock into it, that these guys are actually getting after it. And Joe Judge is building a culture of competition. And that's something he learned from who? Bill Belichick, right? Those practices we know in New England are legendary, right? They're they're legendary for, for what reasons? Players don't like them. Because they make them work. Joe Judge is making the Giants work. I hope Mike McCarthy is doing the same in Dallas. Because, again, (laughs) I'm keeping an eye on those guys. And I'll tell you, Ron Rivera is certainly doing that in D.C. Those guys are going to fight. 
they're going to get after it, and they're going to be nasty. Those are the teams that I look at and go, when they have attitude, it's normally not born of bravado for any reason. It's normally born from something that they believe they've got something there that's worth fighting for early in a camp. Watch out for the Giants this year. I think they're going to take a big step. Yeah, I hear you what you're saying with the Giants and, and what Joe Judge is building. And i just not sure if I can get behind Daniel Jones. And I just don't know if he's good. I, they, <laughs> they, they overdrafted him. They could have drafted him probably at 18 that year with their second first-round pick. Sure. Dave Gettleman, who gets a lot of criticism for how he's kind of built the team and drafting a running back in this modern NFL second overall uh, and taking Daniel Jones when he could have waited a year and possibly get Justin Herbert or taken Jones later in that draft. I just, I'm just not sure. And, and Jason Garrett, a guy you know very well, still mm-hmm. calling the plays there. I know he's maybe showed a little bit of creativity last year and he got a new toy in Kenny Galladay this offseason. But, but for me, I just, I just basically don't know what to do with the division betting wise. And uh, it's, we saw last year, it was a very bad, you know, the team that won the division was under 500. So it's hard right. to yeah. kind of forecast this division. Sure. So for me, I just think I'm going to take this on a game by game basis for each team. And I'm a little bit worried though, that there's a too much love for Washington. I think a lot of people like Washington to win the division. They were like three to one. Uh, earlier this offseason. Now they're two to one in a lot of spots. You can get as good as plus 260, though. But I think I think we saw the best of Fitzpatrick in Miami, and I'm not sure that we're going to see a huge ceiling year from Ryan Fitzpatrick because his ceiling is, is never too high, but his floor could be very low. Nate, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And look, I'm still very close to, to a lot of my friends and, and fan base, certainly back in D.C., and they're, they're drinking the juice on Fitzmagic, right? And smart guy, Harvard guy, how many times we hear that? And I, I like the journeyman aspect to his career, but he's always been a journeyman for a reason. So remember what they did last year in Miami, right? They get off to a good start and they bench him for Tua because even then Brian Flores could see in Miami, as to your point, Nate, that the ceiling was only going to be so high. To quote Michael Jordan, the ceiling was the roof with Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? <laughs> so they had to figure out what they have with Tua Tungavaloa. And I don't even know if we know what that is, but clearly think of that, that they knew then that Tua, who was not overly impressive, still gave them the better long-term prospects for the Dolphins in a season in which they won 10 games. So I look at Ron Rivera and I go, okay, Taylor Heineke, uh, to me, he looked pretty darn good when he got to play. I, I'm a little biased because he's an ODU guy, a 757 guy, and I find myself rooting for those underdog stories. But I really liked what we saw out of him. So not knowing if, he, if it's really a quarterback competition, which it sounds like it is not, to me, there is a cap on how good Washington can be this year because I just don't trust Ryan Fitzpatrick to be a guy that can make them a you know back-to-back divisional champion, go deep into the postseason. I don't see it unless they're solely going to rely on that defense because the offense still has a lot of holes. So unless that defense, which we've seen – a couple of times historically, like the 2000 Ravens and you know the, the 85 Bears, but you really have to go back and find those teams. That's more the anomaly. Is the defense that good that you can just plug and play a journeyman quarterback like we saw those years and a guy like Jim McMahon in, in Chicago and a guy like Trent Dilfer in Baltimore to kind of guide a team deep into the postseason into a championship? That's what they're going to ask Ryan Fitzpatrick to do. I just don't think their offense is good enough and the defense can be that great 
to make up for some of those offensive uh, inequalities there. So, Nate, I'm with you. I just don't think this team, as the way they're currently constructed, is good enough. Like Dallas's ceiling is so much higher to me than what Washington's is, just because the offensive weapons, they're clear to see if you look at it on paper. Yeah, sometimes you always like the Cowboys maybe when there's a little bit less hype. Last year, there was so much hype going into the season on Dallas. As you know, you're probably one of the reasons, Dave, that they were uh, hyped and uh, in total up to 10, I think, and oh ended up closing in that 16-game season. And I mean, it could have <laughs> reached, you know, expectations, but you lose Dak Prescott fifth game into the season. So right. totally understandable. Uh, for me, I'll probably have a bet when we do these NFL division previews here on the podcast, but with the NFC East, there's nothing really that sticks out to me. I mean, I could make that case for the Washington under just because it's gone up a little bit throughout the mm-hmm. offseason. But I think I'd rather just bet against them on a game by game basis, maybe taking the Chargers plus one, plus one and a half in week one when Justin Herbert and uh, Brandon Staley hit the road in, in Washington, D.C. So maybe that's one way to go. Um, just some uncertainty with me with the Eagles, like you mentioned. I think yeah, they could be really, really bad. And mm-hmm. I don't know about that coaching staff. Uh, I think they were trying to basically they regret not having Frank Reich because he was the reason they won the Super Bowl. So they got the closest thing to Frank Reich. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's going to work out, especially uh, with Jalen Hurts. And the Cowboys love what is on offense. I know the fantasy players love CeeDee Lamb, Michael Gallup, but you're going to trust them to get a stop. I'm not sure. I know the Mike Nolan experiment was a disaster and maybe there's improvement in terms of new coaches. And as you mentioned, some new personnel, but I'm going to have to see it to believe it with the Cowboys, at least defensively. It's just got to be the offensive line because again, if if the O-line hangs in there, even if the defense takes a little bit of time to come around, but I do think they'll come around with, with Dan Quinn, the offense will keep them in games, right? There might be some shootouts early on. But I think the defense will get better. Again, Micah Parsons will be a huge part of that. Uh, And we'll see how early on that he can incorporate himself into that linebacker flow. But really, you know, I look at the Buccaneers last year when they won the Super Bowl. What was the revelation? It was the linebacking play, like guys like Devin White, right? And you saw what it did for their pass rush. And if Micah Parsons, not saying he can be that impactful in year one, but we know how good Jalen Smith can be, and we know how good Leighton Van Der Esch can be when they're healthy. If he can be that kind of impact, it's going to help out their pass rush immensely, immensely. And they didn't have one last year. And that's why they were in these shootouts. And even when Dak was healthy, they were still one and three early on in the year because they couldn't stop anybody. I think that'll be different this year. I think there will be a little bit more ball control with Ezekiel Elliott with that offensive line, start run blocking a little bit more so they don't have to throw it all around the yard. I do like the Cowboys this year coming in. Again, we don't know about Dak now in the shoulder. That is a concern. They don't have an Andy Dalton this year to back up. Uh, you know, you can make your jokes about Andy Dalton, but at least he's a serviceable backup. If you got a guy that's out for a couple weeks, they don't really have that. So to me, it's offensive line, Dak or bust. If those guys are healthy up front and Dak stays healthy, to me, this is absolutely a playoff team and the clear favorite to win the East. And so before we move on to UFC, uh, week one, Thursday night football, Cowboys at Bucks, Bucks. Favored by six and a half across the board, total 51, 52. Do you have any uh, play early on, or you're going to wait and see closer to the game? Going to wait, Nate, but I'll tell you this. Did you hear what uh, legendary owner Jerry Jones said yesterday? I mean, Jerry's just laying it on so thick like the molasses down there in the south. He's like, I don't know how we're going to feel the team. You know, we're going to go up there and 
I guess we got to show up and play those guys, the Super Bowl champions and Tom Brady. I can't do it in the great Southern draw that Jerry does. But, like, he's already laying it out there like, oh, woe is me. We're just the little Dallas Cowboys with these little stars on our helmets. How can we ever compete? I love it when Jerry kind of plays that role of, we're just the little guy going up there against big, bad Brady in the <laughs> yeah. Bucks and B.A., right? And all his moxie. It's going to be a good spot for the Cowboys. It, it won't get a whole lot better if the Cowboys are who I think they're going to be. It's probably the best value you might get all year. So if you wait for the seven, if the number gets to seven, jump on it. But you're right, Nate. It's probably hovering around at six and a half for a reason because I think they know people like me will hop on if you can give me that extra point, we know how important that number seven is in NFL games. Let's see if it gets there. I think it will before week one. Yeah, but America's team versus the big, mighty Tampa Bay legendary franchise. So we'll That's have right. to see that <laughs> in week one. Uh, the Cowboys typically a, a big public betting team. So we'll be interested to see if that but spread so goes Brady, down to right? six. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but Brady does too. Out a little bit. Basically, yeah. The uh, it's the Patriots are an extension of the Bucks in terms of a public team, and right. I'm sure no one's gonna be wanting to take uh, the Cowboys with the the Bucks uh, returning everyone, and it's uh, their banner raising game. So I'll tell you this very quickly, Nate. To that point, if you guys have been following, and I'm sure you have, you know, BA Bruce Arians and Tom Brady, they've already been getting on their guys. Like I talked about Joe Judge and the Giants and how feisty they are at camp. That's the reports already out of Tampa. When people wonder what separates Brady, and I'm not saying, you know, the Aaron Rodgers or whatever you want to comparisons you want to make, but that's what makes him the Michael Jordan of the NFL. He's never satisfied. And I'll tell you this, some of his teammates probably don't like him. And we see the Brady, the all shucks guy who gets drunk on the boat and, you know, and <laughs> hoisting the Vince Lombardi over to the other boat, right? What you don't see is Brady and BA allowing Brady to get on his guys. And he's doing that now. Brady knows what Jerry Jones is saying. Brady knows what people are saying. And, oh, shucks, you're 44 now. There's no way you can do it again. Brady has a different DNA chip. And Bruce Arians allows him to use that. Maybe Belichick did to a degree, but not to the degree he has down in Tampa. That's going to play very well for the Buccaneers long term this season. I do not think it was by far a fluke what they accomplished last year. I wasn't surprised at all that they went down there and won. I was surprised nobody wanted Tom Brady last year in free agency. So I think he has another point to prove to me. I know it seems like high totals. I would play a lot of those overs on the Buccaneers because Brady just does not give you an inch. Yeah, it looks like Tampa Bay pretty much consensus 12 is the season win total. And with Drew Brees out that division and some question marks with the Falcons, uh, I think we could possibly see a dominant year from Tampa Bay, and they're the justified favorites to win the NFC. Let's move on to UFC, Dave. I know a sport near and dear to your heart. We have a, a pay-per-view this week, UFC 265 in Houston, Texas, and you were the host of the UFC 265 preview show that you hosted with for Carl Lamas and CM Punk that you can check out on the stadium app and then some of the clips where we preview the uh, fights on the website mm -hmm stadium social page so what's going on in the heavyweight division because that is the main event this this uh week between uh derrick lewis and cyril gan mm -hmm. if i'm pronouncing that right cyril uh, close enough cyril cyril yeah, no, <laughs> it's a guy i've never heard of and i've heard of you know most guys because i've I followed the ufc through you 
But Cyril Gaon against Derek Lewis, where Gaon is a, a pretty substantial favorite. But was this fight really supposed to happen? And I know some heavyweights are not very happy that this is going down on a Saturday night. Yeah, great point, Nate, because it was not supposed to be Cyril Gaon against Derek Lewis here for the heavyweight championship. I mean, if you follow Derek Lewis, and he's a great follow on Twitter. He even said, if they allow me to be the heavyweight champion, then something's gone really wrong in this division. You know, he's poking fun at his lack of skills, right? He's a knockout guy. We all know that. We love to watch him fight for that reason. But this was supposed to be Francis Ngannou. It was a contractual agreement with Houston that if they were going to host a UFC event, they would have a heavyweight championship. When Ngannou and Dana White and the organization had some issues about fighting, uh, Ngannou apparently wasn't ready to go, or at least not the opponent that he wanted. So that fight couldn't get made. But contractually, to honor that with Houston, they had to make this an interim heavyweight bout. And I know a lot of casual fans go, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is to guys like Steve Miocic and certainly Francis Ngannou that go, what? You're going to make this an interim belt? What have these guys done to deserve that type of a claim, that, to hold what some would say is a fake belt? So I understand that. I think we all recognize Francis Ngannou right now still is the heavyweight champ. To Steve Miocic's point is, wait a minute, do I fall behind the winner of this fight Saturday night at UFC 265? And if so, why? Why in the world would I not get that trilogy fight with Francis Ngannou? Because that's what you do for guys like Conor McGregor, right? You let him fight Dustin Poirier a thousand times until he finally gets another win. Why should Stipe Miocic, arguably the greatest heavyweight the UFC has ever had, who's one and one with his fights with Francis Ngannou, fall behind the line of the Cyril Gaon, Derek Lewis winner. So for, for that, I understand where the contention comes in. And Ngannou doesn't want that. I think he'd rather have a trilogy fight with Stipe than have to fight the winner of this. And if we remember the Derek Lewis against Francis Ngannou fight, you should try to forget it. It's one of the worst heavyweight bouts you've ever seen. I'm still waiting for one guy to throw a punch that lands in that bout. So it's not exactly intriguing if Derek Lewis wins. Nate, to your point about Cyril Gaon, who is he, right? I think that's what a lot of the people are looking at. He's a Frenchman. Uh, he's undefeated in the UFC, undefeated in his MMA career. But who is he? He's a big guy, and he, he has requisite skills. But is he ready to go in there with a guy like Derek Lewis at that big a price, as that big a favorite in Derek Lewis's hometown? I mean, guys, I got to be honest with you. My eyes lit up when I saw over plus 200, plus 240, plus 260 in certain books, right? I went, you've got to be kidding me. Here's a guy in Cyril Gaon that's got to get close to win. And when you get close to Derek Lewis, bad things can happen. So unless he try to utilize his wrestling, and we saw what happened even with Chicago's own Curtis Blades against Derek Lewis when he got too close. And then one uppercut ended the night quickly in a fight that Curtis Blades was dominating. So Derek Lewis will even laugh at himself. I only, I'm a one-trick pony, but what a trick it is. It's arguably the best right hand, not named Francis Ngannou. So to me... This is way too big a price for a relative unknown in the UFC to go into somebody else's backyard in a hostile environment in a full capacity crowd. Because you got to remember, when they fight in Vegas, a lot of times at the Apex, there's no crowd. This crowd is going to be live. And I'm telling you guys, it affects the fighters differently. So every edge that I see plays to the advantage of the underdog, Derek Lewis, in this situation. To me, there's no way I'm laying that kind of price with a guy in Cyril Gaon that I'm just not sure about when at least I know what I'm getting with Derek Lewis. And that's arguably the biggest puncher in the division, not named Francis Ngannou. Yeah, I see much as uh, minus 400 as a favorite. And I mean, from what on. you're saying, I mean, obviously he's probably the better fighter if he's that price, but 
if you build in price at three to one, maybe Derek Lewis is going to make your betting card on Saturday. Yes, absolutely. I just, again, to me, Cyril Gunn has all the requisite skills, much more skills and more ways to win the fight than Derek Lewis has. But Derek Lewis is one trick. And normally I, I tend to back fighters, especially guys that are big favorites, if they have many more pathways to victory, right? That's the way I kind of look at it. And Gunn certainly can beat you on points. But does he want to go five rounds with Derek Lewis? Because the longer you go with a guy like Lewis, and we've seen this throughout Lewis's career, he somehow hangs in there. And it just takes one. And over that duration for me, it's not a three-round fight. If it's a three-round fight, I really like Cyril Gaon here because he can just kind of ride it out, win on points, and you don't have to really engage. That's kind of what Ngannou did when he beat Derek Lewis, if you remember that fight. You can't do that in a five-round fight. At some point, you're going to get close. And that's why, to me, this is a real live dog. Derek Lewis knows how many more runs is he going to get at the heavyweight championship. This is his best opportunity to hold that interim belt that I'm sure he doesn't even care about. But if he gets it, then he can make the case, okay, do I get Francis again in a rematch or does Stipe go back up there and I fight the winner? Either way, a win for Derek Lewis puts him right back in title contention. So the four other main event cards uh, for UFC 265, pretty close toss-up-wise, betting-wise. Do you have any other favorites that you're going to play out of those four cards? Yeah, I do. And I I look at some of these fights and I go, man, I really wish Amanda Nunez was still on this card. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we all always like to watch the greatest against Juliana Pena. That would have been a great match, but they've got some other really good fights, Ben, to your point that have really filled the gap here. It's a deep card. Even the, the, the main event might not be the sexiest card that we have for a main event. The undercards or on the, at least on, on the uh, pay-per-view are lights out fights. And I got to tell you, when I look at Vincente Luque, uh, going up against Michael Chiesa, that fight is so intriguing to me at 170 pounds. And even a guy like Chiesa, who went on record and said, this is probably the most dangerous dangerous opponent I've ever faced. And people go, oh, he's scared. No, no, he's not scared. That's respect. And that respect to me for a guy like Chiesa, and Ben, you mentioned it, the odds are pretty pretty even here. He's going to wrestle a big puncher like Vincente Luque. And I really like Chiesa in this spot because I think that people are looking at Luque and his size. He's going to be the bigger guy at 170 by far in this matchup. So physically he's going to look imposing when they stand across each from each other in the octagon. But once they get close, watch for the takedowns from Chiesa to me in a three round fight. And again, that's you have, always have to kind of figure out how long of a duration can a wrestler go. He can wrestle for three rounds all day. Chiesa's gas tank is not going to go down. So to me, if you're looking on, an, uh, you know, on the still on the main card, but in a smaller fight, not in the, in the main event, look at Chiesa here in this spot. I really like him as a small dog as a guy that can pull the upset by grounding and pounding his way to victory. All right, let's talk golf, another sport. I know, Dave, you like to talk about on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, First off, did you watch any of the Olympic golf? That Xander Shoffley took the gold and two unexpected uh, golfers, the Slovakian Rory Sabatini, actually the South African who has Slovakian citizenship, and then C.T. Pan winning the bronze. Uh, Did you watch any of that? I know it was kind of tough viewing just considering when the when the golf was on. Okay, I'll I'll be honest, Nate. Like for the British Open or the Open, as they say, I set my alarm and wake up in the middle of the night and watch because I'm a freak like that and I've done it pretty much my whole life. For the Olympics, I, I didn't do it, so I watched it on delay, kind of already knowing the results would sucked. But like, <laughs> I wish I could have had the stamina to get up and watch it because when I watched the replays, it was it was pretty good golf, and, and it is surprising a little bit to me. 
Uh, not that Xander won. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a great story. And uh, my buddy Carl Paulson, who used to be a tour professional, now does great work for uh, SiriusXM. You know, Carl was just relating a story where he was going to do the interview and Xander had the gold medal in his pocket. It, not that, like, he was so humble about it that he didn't want to, like, brag. Carl made him put it, take it out and put it around his neck. Like, if I won that thing, I'm wearing it to dinner, no matter where I go, <laughs> you know. But that's the type of guy that Xander Shopley is. And I, I think it really meant a lot to him. Certainly means a lot for the United States of America to see us so well represented uh, to go over there and win in that manner is spectacular. I will say this, you like watching Rory McIlroy and seeing his good play after a rough day one. It's still, you know, like Justin Rose won the gold in 2016. And I look at it historically and go, okay, Rosie now has a U.S. Open and he has an Olympic gold medal. I think that makes him a Hall of Famer just with those two. So Xander Shoffley, who does not have a major to his credit yet, but now has that Olympic gold medal, because it's still the best field in golf that you're beating, right? I mean, still, it's still individual play. It's not a team event or anything like that. You still went out there for four days, and in the pressure cooker that still is an Olympic event, he won. So to me, that's not like a periphery we put on the side. That's something to be exalted. So Xander Shoffley, for me, that helps with whatever his career becomes, right? So to me, if he goes out there and wins a major, which we all suspect he will in time, he's just that talented, with that gold medal, yeah. That's going to help his Hall of Fame legacy one day, and I think he'll get there. It's just it has he hasn't cast yet at any of the four majors. Well, Xander is the king of no-cut events. I think he only has one uh, <laughs> event that when it was the Greenbrier, which was a yep. long time ago. So maybe not surprised he won a no-cut event, but we got another no-cut event that he'll be participating in this week, WGC St. Jude. It's in Memphis, TPC Southwind. So it's a WGC, so it's an unknown event, as I mentioned. It's a smaller mm -hmm. field, but it is the best players in the world. John Rahm is not in, unfortunately. He did test positive for COVID before the Olympics, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, last last year, Justin Thomas won. Two years ago, Brooks Kepka won. Before this, it wasn't a WGC event. It was just a regular event on tour that they would play at this course. DJ won in 2018. Mm -hmm. Daniel Berger won back-to-back -back years. Uh, I don't know how much you've looked at the field, Dave, on a Tuesday, but is there anything that you like so in this tournament? Or is it kind of a stay away and maybe get involved during the FedEx Cup playoffs when it's a bigger field and it's a, a field where it's more not so many top-heavy names where it's kind of hard to parse through who you like the most? Yeah, Nate, that's a great question. I, I'll tell you what I, what I find myself doing in non-majors is I kind of wait until the Thursday action kicks off I kind of reset after that first round and see who I think still has maybe a bigger name that's laying back in the, in, the, in the weeds a little bit that still might get back into this thing. I might do that at a WGC event because they're all going to be properly motivated. Sometimes you get to a lesser field, right? And a guy like Brooks Kepka is going to be a bad play because he's just not going to be that into it. Brooksies will be the first guy to admit that. In a field like this, Nate, to your point of an elite field, that's when the, the juices get flowing with these guys, right? And that's when you read off the pedigree of uh, names of guys that have won here in the past. It's going to be the best of the best. So I'm going to look at a Brooks Kepka this week and see how he does on Thursday. I'm going to hope as a betting perspective that he's not leading after Thursday and hope <laughs> he's like th three or four back with three days to make that up. Yeah, that's the type of play I do. I'd hop in in-game, if you will, but I'm probably not going to make a pre-flop, if you will, play uh, before they tee it up on Thursday. I just want to see see which big guns are still in contention and still properly motivated to make that weekend charge. 
Yeah, and out of the favorites, I think Brooks is probably the best call because he wasn't playing in Japan last week. And I mean, I know the flights now are more luxurious, but who knows? The heat, <laughs> coming from the heat of Tokyo and Japan to Memphis, it's a far trip. And it, the Olympic experience, I'm sure some athletes wanted to take in kind of the week and not just focus on their golf. So I could see Brooks very focused, but you are going to have to pay a premium uh, on him this week just because he's the favorite. Let me tell you a quick story that I heard uh, from Kyle Morikawa. I found this fascinating. After he won his second major, of course, at the Open Championship. And he said, he admitted, he said when he got on tour, his objective was to make cuts. That was his mentality, right? And he said Brooks Kepka was the guy that pulled him aside and said, you're here to win. And he said it changed his whole mentality of being up there with, like, oh, my goodness, I'm playing with the best of the best. And then he realized he is the best of the best. And so it changed his outlook of not trying to make cuts. This is a non-cut event, of course, the WGC. But, but that's what clicks for great players. So when you get a field like this, even watch out for a Morikawa. Watch out for those guys that have won recently on tour, like Colin winning his second major. They get in these roles, and sometimes they make up a career. I mean, Brooks Kepka won four majors in basically, what, a three-year span? These guys win them in bunches So in big events, and Brooks won the WGC as well. So – I look for a guy like Morikawa as well. Guys playing well, pedigreed against the best of the world. They seem to thrive in that environment more so than a regular tour stop where the field might not be as talented. So that's why I'm going to look for those guys like a Brooksy, like a Morikawa this week to really play well. I'm going to quickly just share the bets I have this week or bets I'm considering. I wrote them up in the stadium newsletter. And Dave, if you have any thoughts, you can share. But I'm going to back Daniel Berger at 22 to 1. As I mentioned, he won at this course two years in a row back when it was just the St. Jude Classic. He has some good finishes in majors and he didn't make the trip to Tokyo. So I like him. Uh, Louis Oosthuizen, I never bet on him and he's never won in America, but uh, he's done him. everything but win this year. Yeah. I mean, come on. He is. He's due. Uh, he has right, three. Man, come on. He has two, uh, three top threes in the last three majors. Oh. And you maybe thought like the way he lost the Open Championship or just the disappointment on Sunday, he'd be dejected. But he comes to Min- goes to Minnesota and finishes tied for second. So I so feel like does. this is leading up to a a Louis maybe win finally in America or just win the Tour Championship and that fifteen million dollar paycheck in a month. Well, let me ask you guys a rhetorical question here because I think I know the answer, but. To lose in the way that he did at the U.S. Open when John Rahm goes absolutely lights out, birdie, birdie finish, to steal that uh, from Louie, and then to lose at the British Open, but as you mentioned, a top three. I, I see it all the time. People look at Louis Oosthuizen as a failure, and I go, what am I missing? Because he's already won a major when he just obliterated the field at the British Open back in 2010, I believe. And then to your point, Nate, of three, top three, I mean, are you kidding me? This guy is there every single week. And to me, that cannot be viewed as a failure when other guys go beat you. Like, these are the best. John Rahm, there's nobody hotter on the planet except for COVID, right? If it wasn't for COVID, Rahm would be winning everything. So to me, I can't look at Louie and say that this year or last year or his career as a whole is a failure. That to me is just a terrible narrative. I will say, though, for the Open, um, because I'm a very patriotic person, I had the an American to win the Open, and Louis going into the weekend, I believe, was leading, and I had no fear that he was uh, going to win that one. I, I was sitting pretty, I was very happy. I said, all right, you got two Americans behind him. I'm feeling good about this bet. 
Yeah, you nailed that one. And that's the thing, too. It's like you, you do always feel like something bad is going to happen to Louie. Because, again, yeah. I go back to the Masters and Bubba Watson, I believe 2012, where he hits the shot, the bend it like Beckham shot. I mean, like Louie yeah. Ustase is sitting on the green in two, ready to win the green jacket, and then Bubba hits an all-time shot. He's going to win the U.S. Open until John Rahm makes two ridiculous putts on 17 and 18. So it's not like he's playing and, and gagging at the end to lose. He's right. getting beat by historical moments in the game of golf. So that's yeah. why I cut little Louie some slack. Plus, I'm little like Louie is, so I'm rooting for the little guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree with you there, Dave. He's still had an incredible career, and he's still – what, 37? I, like, he could still win a major, and maybe the magic at majors will continue next year. And, I mean, I wouldn't mind if he wins this week because I'll be on him at 22-1. to 1. Um, Also going to buy Scott uh, bet on Scotty Scheffler, 31-1, to 1, which is a weird odd. I think he's 28-1 to 1 in a lot of places, which is fine. Scheffler just has played well in some of the strongest fields. He was the runner-up at the WGC match play, three top eight finishes in the last three majors, and then he finished third at the Memorial which is a, one of the best fields for a non-major. So I like mm-hmm. him. He hasn't won yet, so I think the breakthrough is coming sometime this year. So this is a perfect spot for him. And then my longer shot, Sergio Garcia, oh, seventy yeah. to one, Dave. What? He, if you look at some of the advanced stats, the 3M Open performance, he led the field in tee to green by a lot. He just putted horribly. If you can just keep that ball striking up and finally just putt field average for one week i like him to contend at 70 to 1 in this field i know it's a strong field but it's not a not a deep field because it's a shorter field and he could have one bad round and still be okay i like sergio a lot at that number okay you know i love serge right and ben a quick story i'm sure nate's heard this before we're at the pga championship at whistling straits in 2015 and i'm by myself at dinner with some of our uh former people from stadium and who's having dinner right next to us but sergio and i said they're like you know, I, I freak out. And they're like, don't embarrass us. And I said, oh, I'm absolutely going to embarrass us. And I walked <laughs> over to Serge and I, Serge, I said, Sergio, we're all rooting for you. And he gave me the clenched fist back, right? Just no there words, just clenched fist, right? And we just shared a moment and had a blast. My problem, mate, since then, obviously, Serge went on to win at Augusta, right? And he's got his green jacket. And I love the odds. And the ball striking is never going to go away. That guy, T to Green, will always be one of the best to do it. But you mentioned the putting. And I wonder if that Sergio fire that he had that week to win at Augusta has been extinguished because he had said infamously before, maybe I'm just not good enough to win a major, which of course was not true because he went and won his green jacket. But it feels like since then, he just kind of goes through the motions on the green. And you're talking to a guy that loves Serge, but I want the El Nino back. I want the kid back. I want the fight back. And if you show me a little bit of that, Serge, then I'd be more apt to hop on board. But I love it as a long shot. If you're getting, getting 70 to 1, he's going to be around because his ball striking is just that good. But he's got to stop putting indifferently. and Because that's more callous hang-up, right, is the putter. And then Colin just said, you know, hell with this. I'm going to start making putts. And he did. I need Sergio to have that mentality. Like, screw this. I'm Screw the claw and everything else I'm trying. Go <laughs> make putts, Sergio, because your ball striking is still really good. It's still elite even at your advancing age in the game of golf. Phil Mickelson proved it. It can be done for four days at 70 to one. It's certainly worth a long shot. Yeah, I fully expect Sergio to uh, be like tied for six, maybe like three back on Sunday 
double bogey one, oh, uh, exactly. bogey and just two. Check and out. He's gonna finish like tied for twenty seventh. And, uh, <laughs> and I also, met him, I also because of the you know it's a loaded field, and I expect one of the top guys still to win. I bet Sergio top five at fourteen to one. So Ooh. just stay in there, Sergio, and just we can at least there. have a profitable week. Yeah, and I do like your Daniel Berger pick. This this does feel like a tailor made event for him. Uh, he obviously has great history at this track. So that's pretty good value as well for a guy who might be flying below the radar. Cause you remember, uh, back in 2020, Berger was on fire. He was one of the best yeah. players in the world, uh, in the COVID year. I think you're right. The track might get him back to playing that type of golf again. Well, Dave, we appreciate you coming on, being very generous with your time. Uh, where, where can people find you on social media if they're trying to well, look? It- if they dare, Ben, they can follow me at D-Raw Sports. <laughs> but as you guys know, I'm not going to pull any punches when it comes to golf, MMA, football. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it the way I see it. And sometimes it's not always PC. But feel free to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> there we go. Dave Ross, appreciate you joining us. You guys are the best. Thank you very much. All right. We want to thank Dave for coming on. Appreciate him and his time and stopping by. And uh, he definitely had a lot to say. All right, should we go to best bets? Absolutely. I know there's not a lot of sports going on, but I think we each kind of have isolated something we we like a lot. I'm not proud of mine, but I think it had to be done. It had to be done. So I'm gonna tail it though. Okay. Uh, so the one that I the my best bet is from the NFL Hall of Fame game, and I'm <laughs> I'm hitting the total on the NFL Hall of Fame game. Not proud of it. Not happy about it, but I think it has to be done. The total right now is 33. I think you can get – it's 33 with juice on the under. and you, I think there are places you can get it at 32.5 at about minus 110. But I'm going to go under 33 or under 32.5. Looking at the past 10 or 11 years of the Hall of Fame game, uh, all but two have gone under 33. So I would, uh, I would suggest going the under. This is not usually a high-scoring game. And Nate, you were telling me before, uh, Pittsburgh's plan is really to play all three quarterbacks. And that was a team, even when they had Roethlisberger, they could not score the football last year in a normal game. So I, I would say, I mean, you could see this game being like 17-14 or something like that, some low scoring game. Um, so I, I would go under 33 in the uh, in the Hall of Fame game. Yeah, and actually Roethlisberger isn't even going to suit up. It's going to be yeah. the plan. First half, Mason Rudolph, Dwayne Haskins. Second half, Josh Dobbs. So I do like that underplay. And and because Rudolph and Haskins are more uh, pocket quarterbacks who aren't going to be moving around like a Josh Dobbs, I think even going first half under could be a way <laughs> to go. Because in preseason games, the fourth quarter can get pretty pretty strange. And there could be some scoring at the end. Uh, yeah. 33 is, is a low number. So maybe just taking out the last, you know, when it's the third stringers and guys who aren't going to make the team uh, might be the way to go in, in first half. But I do endorse the full game, as, as you mentioned, for your best bet. Listen, I'm not proud of it, but it had to be done. So, yeah, that's Thursday night, and it's it's Dave's Cowboys in the in the Hall of Fame game before the enshrinement. And I'm going to go to Thursday morning for my best bet, very early in the morning. So you probably know it's going to be those the Olympics. Alarms. It's going to be the Olympics. Set them. I'll be setting mine for before 6 a.m. Central time, but <laughs> 7 a.m. Eastern time. And it's the men's Olympics basketball semifinals. I'm going to take Slovenia and lay the two and a half against France. This is definitely a homer pick because I am half Slovenian. And I do have Slovenia to medal 
at plus two to one or two plus 200, two to one. So just have to win one game. They'll guarantee that. And sometimes people like, oh, maybe you want to hedge and kind of guarantee a profit in case they lose this game. But I'm going to double down on Slovenia, lay the two and a half against France, the team that did beat the U.S. early in the Olympics. But Slovenia has played extremely well this Olympics, led by Luka Doncic, dominating Argentina and Japan, beating Spain in a game that was huge because if they lost that game, they probably would have had to play the U.S. in the quarterfinals. So they avoiding the U.S. was huge. They played Germany in the quarterfinals on Monday night or Tuesday in Japan. They won that game handily by 24, but I don't think they even played their best. So I'm going to go back to the Slovenia well. Bet them minus two and a half. Uh, this team has definitely been upgraded by the betting market throughout the tournament, and I'm not going to stop now. So maybe you're <laughs> buying, a, buying a team at its highest point, like we mentioned the college football section, or selling a team at its lowest point. But I'm going to continue to buy Slovenia into the gold medal game, which is going to be played on Friday night in the United States, Saturday early in Japan. So Slovenia minus two and a half is my bet against France in the men's Olympic basketball semifinal. It's half your heritage. So I have to take your word for it. I, I think you have to, I have to ride with it. You got to go yeah. with it. I'll tail your pick. If you tail mine, <laughs> there we go. Perfect. 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 So good luck to everyone betting uh, the hall of fame game and, and betting the rest of the Olympics. Uh, good luck to that. We will be back next week. More conference previews, more guests, more things to look at. Should be fun. We're looking forward to it. But for now, good luck tomorrow and good luck into the weekend.